Welcome to The Scott Pod, a podcast celebrating the life, work, art and music of Scott Hutchison, frontman of Frightened Rabbit, Al John, Master System and so much more. Each episode of The Scott Pod features a discussion with a special guest talking about what they've done to commemorate Scott or raise money for any of his worthy causes. On this episode of The Scott Pod, we're talking to Ryan Bozeman, who goes by the musical handle Brotherwell. Ryan creates songs in collaboration with poets from across the United States and the wider world, from his home in St. Augustine, Florida. A first collaborative record, Recovery, was released by Brotherwell on the 9th of May, 2022, in aid of Tiny Changes. Recovery features 13 tracks from different poets across the US, including poems submitted by Chris Bodder and Matthew McGurick. Since then, Ryan has gone on to collaborate with Francis Delaria, our guest from episode one of The Scott Pod. Together, they released a song in collaboration for the poem After a Suicide, which was also released in aid of Tiny Changes. I had a great time talking with Ryan on all things Brotherwell, recovery, after a suicide, and of course, our subject of choice, Scott. Hi, I'm Ryan Bozeman. I go by the name Brotherwell. So I've recently released a record called Recovery, where I worked with poets across the United States. This kind of was born out of quarantine and the need to collaborate and connect, albeit digitally. So we, uh, we released the album on May 9th, which is a very significant day for Frightened Rabbit fans. And all proceeds are going towards Tiny Changes. So you could find on all streaming platforms, on Apple Music, iTunes, you name it, Ezer, whatever that is, it's on everything. But every stream, every share, every download, every like helps us pay it forward and donate to Tiny Changes. A little bit about that album. So I found a lot of poets through mutual friends on Facebook, built a team of 12 poets, and then they sent me their original poems based on the theme of recovery, especially with a focus on mental health of coming out of quarantine of, you know, past addictions, current addictions, past trauma, you name it, there's recovery in a lot of those things. So they sent me their poems and then I created songs around them. So I created uh, original music and then I actually sang and wrote lyrics too. So it's a little bit of me and a little bit of them. Everything is going towards a good cause. So that project is called Recovery. Now, if you're typing that in, it's spelled R-E and then there's a colon and then covery. So recovery. And then my most recent release that I'm very excited about is with the poet Francis Delario. We collaborated on one of his poems from his new collection called Joy, which I highly recommend. Ironically, I derive so much joy just from reading his poetry. He reminds me of Robert Frost in his delivery. Robert Frost is my favorite American poet. This is almost a year ago. He sent me two poems I reached out to him just randomly, you know, kind of like, please, he's like a rock star poet to me. So, you know, he's just a shot in the dark and he responded. So we, we worked on two poems. One was called After a Suicide, um, which again, if you're a Frightened Rabbit fan, that's, you know, near and dear to your heart. Very raw, very connective, open, honest, emotional. There's a lot of emotions. So we just released that song on all platforms. We've had an overwhelming response so far. We're almost up to 3,000 streams on Spotify, which, you know, to me is a huge deal. You know, I didn't know if we would get more than 50 or something. So the fact that it's almost at 3,000, it's amazing to me. And uh, we actually have another song coming out soon. It's called Our Rights of Invigoration. I'm super excited about that too, because it's everything that after a suicide is, this one isn't. 
So this one is full of joy and happiness and life and spring. And it's almost life affirming in a way. His poem is my favorite poem of all time. I created music around that, that I hope did it justice. So that's coming soon. Again, it's, all proceeds are going to go to Tiny Changes and hopefully he'll work with me again. <laughs> that's what I'm hoping. After Suicide, it's out. That song, it was very difficult to get off the ground. First of all, because he he doesn't really know me, but he trusted me with that poem. Of, of any poem in that collection, he trusted me with that one. So I, I felt responsibility to elevate the song in a way that doesn't take away from what he's saying. You want his words to be the centerpiece, and you just want that music to be the vehicle that delivers his message. So at first, I just had his poem, his spoken word in my music software. I just listened to it a few times going like, wow, okay, what can I do here? <laughs> and then I just kind of wrote it one note at a time, one chord at a time, starting with the first chord and <laughs> going there. Uh, so I just kind of built it and built it and, and built it. And then the icing on the cake was when he got Catherine Joseph to record some vocals too, that really adds a human element to it. And it's quite striking at the end. I have her repeating several lines, including stay, please, which hurts every time I listen to it. I think it really gives it that emotional wallop that we really wanted for the piece. The whole poem's lined with so much emotional resonance, but to mm. get that feeling across inside the music as well. And if you don't mind me saying so, obviously the couple of tracks that you sent over, clearly you've targeted a feel of Frightened Rabbits music and essence somewhere in there, or if it's just because that's the kind of music you're into and you like listening to, that it just comes across as an influence anyway. But it felt like the dual vocals, as you say, sounded almost reminiscent of Scott with Julian Baker trading lines on songs. Good connection. Absolutely. Is there anything else about the crafting the music behind both poems that you've done so far and in fact recovery in general? Not really musically. I don't really think about it. The music just comes out. It is what it is. I try not to think about it too much. I just let that happen. But the biggest influence from Frightened Rabbit and from Scott, which sticks with me every day, is the lyrics. That used to, when I used to write songs years ago, I had a filter. I was afraid to say certain things. Maybe I would hide through metaphors a little bit in my lyrics. But inspired by Scott and his story, I've learned to lose my filter and I've learned to just say what I'm trying to say without hiding it. And even if that's a bit scary, I know that there's a community for that that's receptive to raw honesty. And I think it's kind of helped me. It's kind of been a therapy for me to say, well, I'm just going to put this all out there and people have questions. That's fine. But I'm just going to let that be my art is my honesty. That's my biggest influence for sure from Frightened Rabbit. And I mean, their music is amazing. The interesting thing about me as a fan is I was never even a Frightened Rabbit fan until 2019. So after Scott passed, that's when I discovered them. I kind of had a backwards initiation into Frightened Rabbit fandom. And I started backwards. I started with Painting of a Panic Attack. <laughs> that was the first album I heard. There's something quite deep and sonically rich about that record. Uh, it's very lush. So hearing that, I expected that when I went back to the back catalog. So I went from that to Midnight Organ Fight. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> this sounds like a completely different band. I know Mumford & Sons is not the right connection, but they had kind of a folky, more acoustic-y, bluegrassy almost kind of sound on some of those songs. I don't know anybody personally that is a Frightened Rabbit fan. I'm in Florida. People don't even know about Biffy Quiro over here. <laughs> so the fact that we get to talk about it a little bit here is just, I could talk about it for hours and hours and hours and not get tired of it. I mean, you guys got the fest there, right? That's about the coolest musical thing I can think of Florida way. Yeah. You mentioned you got into Frightened Rabbit 2019, mm -hmm. Painting of a Panic Attack. Do you remember how you found it in the first place? 
I remember the day that all that news came out. And again, I'd never heard of the band. And even the name of the band, I was just kind of like, eh, this sounds like some kind of indie band. So I never really looked into it. But I was on Twitter one night randomly and something about Scott came up and I just, I clicked on it. I read it, you know, oh gosh, that's a really sad story. And then I was like, you know what? Like, let me, let me listen to the music. Let, let me give this band a chance. And that's when I put on Death Dream. And then I went to Get Out and I was like, wow, like this song is even better than the first song. And then I got to I Wish I Was Sober and woke up hurting. And every, I mean, every song on that album and the B-sides too, the B-sides are, are amazing too. A Lick of Paint, how did that not make the album? Uh, the Wreck, I think The Wreck is one of their most beautiful songs. And it's just a, it's not even on the LP. I have their vinyl too. And it's not even on, that. it's just a, you know, a throw in. Once I heard that album, I was completely obsessed and I was hooked. I was taken aback by the story. So I read a lot about Scott. He did a lot of album track by track breakdowns. I really had a good time kind of digging into his lyrics. And then I just, I went on a download party where I just, I downloaded everything. Like I said, I went back to the Midnight Organ fight, downloaded that. I can see why it's a fan favorite. I went to the next record and the next record, you know, Pedestrian Verse and the winner of Mixed Drinks. I loved every song on every record. So combine that with my desire for new music, the story, connecting with Scott, the lyrics, the community. I was just completely obsessed where I went through at least a year stretch where I pretty much only listened to Frightened Rabbit. And then I discovered Al John, that record. Love that. Just felt like another Frightened Rabbit record. And then I discovered Master System. Love that. It felt like another Frightened Rabbit album. I was awash in Scott songs. Around that same time is when I was starting to collaborate and write these poets. And so it was just the cycle. I was just so inspired and my creative well wasn't running dry. You know, it was a really productive, creative period. I crave new music all the time, but I so rarely get new music that I like, that I connect to. You know, I think it had been years, really, since the last time I was hooked on a record. But once I got into Frightened Rabbit, it was all of them, all at once, all the songs, all the B-sides, Fields of Wheat, played that song on repeat. No Real Life played that song on repeat. I could not get over that I had never heard of them until after it happened and was felt guilty in a weird way about that. Like I didn't earn this fanship like other Frightened Rabbit people did, which is weird because I mean, I just never heard of them being in Florida, the home of country music and Nickelback and that kind of crap. I can definitely empathize. One of my favorite artists of all time is Elliot Smith. And the first time I heard about Elliot Smith was the day he died. And someone passed me a record that day and said, here, listen to this. You're going to love this guy. And I was like, why didn't you tell me two years you know, ago? It's definitely hard to listen to the music, though, because I've never listened to the music without thinking about what happened. You know, and so I never had that fan experience of just like being in the moment. The songs are being released in real time and having that connection. It's almost like how I feel when I listen to Nirvana. I can't listen to Nirvana without thinking about Kurt Cobain and what, and what happened. So it's kind of that same phenomenon in a way. I wish I could go back in time to 2013 and hear Pedestrian Verse like as it was being released rather than like listening to it through this prism that I can't get away from. Every lyric you're like, yep, yep. Like I can see where that's going. I can see where that lyric's going. Floating in the fourth. You hear that now, it's super painful to listen to. But at the time, you know, it was just a sad song on the end of the record. I've always worried about artists that I think, oh, there's something about them. They've got that thing. If you've got that thing, you see it in other people. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I heard that song and just thought, oh, that is a new level of dark song. Like it was dark as a Kurt Cobain song ever got. No, I swear I don't have a gun. Felt poignant, but nothing was quite as poignant as I think I'll save suicide for another day. It's literally saying it. It's not hiding behind any kind of veiled mm -hmm. reference, metaphor, anything. There's no ambiguity about it. 
he is speaking his truth to you directly and saw him play it live five six times and every time i was like how do you sing that song how do you bring yourself to like it was amazing that he ever wrote it and the perfect song for anyone who's ever felt those things to have that comfort of knowing that someone has captured it in a way bottled by essence in a beautiful way too for such an ugly song it is a extremely beautiful song it's this weird dichotomy it's just hard to listen to he always had a way of dragging the crowd in drawing them in and winning them over getting them on side whether it was their own shows or festivals or anything looking at all the footage too i mean he seems so comfortable on stage i almost wonder if that was like the only place where he found some solace was there I'm sure at some point more of his contemporaries and friends and people who worked with him will speak in more detail about what he was like outside of being on stage. I had the good fortune to stand next to him watching one of mutually our favourite bands play, which was up in Scotland, and band that he'd loved since being a kid, same as me, and we just kind of stood there. And I said two words to him. I think it was great show because he'd supported them. And that was the only two words I ever said to him, I think. It did seem like he just loved music, just loved being there. He was big enough that he could have headlined that same venue the next night comfortably, either with yeah. the band or Al John or whatever. That was actually mm -hmm. a gig he did with Michael Pedersen, the poet. Ah, I have reached out to him, but he hasn't contacted me back. So Michael, if you're listening, let's work together, man. <laughs> I did hear a reading of a poem called Seaspoon. There's a video on YouTube and it is striking and sad and it hurts in the best way so if everything in that collection is like that it, that's going to be a hell of a collection he's a really good performer as well it's a great thing to have as a working poet when i bought oyster by michael peterson my american ears were not used to the scottish because there's a major scottish draw throughout the poems where i have to read them several times i can't help but like hear the poems in a scottish accent <laughs> i'm still working through getting that book they're beautiful poems. They just, they take work. Yeah. They take mental work for me to work through. The first time that you sit down with a poet, are you diving straight into their reading or are you diving into the written poem first? I have them send me or email me the poem and then I ask for their interpretation. So I just kind of see where they're coming from. I ask them about what kind of music they like. I keep an open dialogue through Facebook as we work on the poem. I like really like to stay connected. So once I get their audio in GarageBand, I just, I listen to it a few times and then I don't really think. I just start writing. I feel like if I think, I'm going to overthink. So instead, I think kind of hit the keys. And a lot of them are just kind of built. It's a very tedious process. It very rarely just is like, you know, forms in my head. And then there's the song. It's usually like, well, the poem, you know, there's a, there's a peak in the poem here. So the music has to be built and it has to kind of lift. Or there's a sorrowful part on the poem or like a really honestly powerful, raw part of a poem. So maybe you want to draw the music down a little bit. Or maybe you want to end with an emotional punch. So I just kind of take what the poem is giving me. And without thinking too much, I just start writing from scratch. So, I mean, it's a really gratifying process. It's a labor of love for sure. There's hours and hours that go into not just writing it, but recording it and then editing and listening to that one little vocal line that's a little bit wobbly. So then you have to go back and fix that. It'll always bug you. There's always like even one little thing that's off. So it's tedious, but it's good work. I always keep the end in mind and my end in mind is donating to tiny changes. So it always pushes me along to just keep working and do justice to the poem and to the song. Do you do much chopping and changing of the performance of the poem that's sent across to you? Yeah, I do actually. Um, a lot of times there's background noise or there's clipping or there's pops or, you know, there was like the sound of a car horn in someone's. So I edit out as much as I can, but 
a lot of those little imperfections are kind of buried by the music anyways. So I do tend to edit and push some lines closer together or separate some. That's never predetermined. It's always just, let's see where the song goes. Let's see where the, the road takes us. I mean, very rarely do I just plop the spoken word on there and then it's done. There's always a little bit of editing at least. And EQing and making sure that the poem is loud enough. I'm always sensitive to the fact that I feel like sometimes my singing and my music takes away from the poem. I always have to put the poet first and always make sure that they are the spotlight. A really fun balance what you do. And for people who are checking it out for the first time, it's great to have a balance between a poem that perhaps they'll know, perhaps they won't know. If you're going away and listening to it with new ears, it's a great way to find a poem and have a peer's interpretation of that poem happening in real time, presented to you in a musical form. Interesting thing is I get to write lyrics too, with no pushback. So I can write about whatever I want. And a lot of times it's connected to the poem, but sometimes I'm just putting myself in there and I'm telling my story that connects enough to the poem to where it makes sense. But at the same time, I'm like, oh yeah, I just snuck in this part about myself. Way to go. All that stuff, all that emotional garbage needs to go somewhere. And that's where it goes. It goes into the songs. Luckily, recovery is a quite a heavy topic. So a lot of the stuff that I'm trying to flush out relates to that. I assume there's a a pointed reason as to why recovery was the topic for the collection that you put together. Yeah, it was. But it was really more about just something collectively that I thought a group of people that I didn't know could wrap their arms around. Because even the healthiest of people have something that they've recovered from. I just kind of viewed it from COVID, that soft dread of being inside all the damn time, losing connection, gaining weight, all those normal things that you're so used to you know, for 40 years, all uh, fell to the wayside. I really wanted a universal topic that I thought strangers and I could both connect with. If you go into the poems themselves, you'll see that each poet has their own story. And no one's telling the same story about what they went through. Every single one, there's 13 songs. There's a different slice of recovery. We could have done 50 more songs and had 50 more pieces of the spectrum of recovery. It wasn't like really one super specific thing rather than just like quarantine sucks. Let's connect. I wanted to be creative. I was dying just to kind of get out of my shell a little bit. So almost a manic level, 15 to 20 hours on each song times 13 songs, nonstop, never a break. The song is done the same day. Hey, your song is on. Okay. I'm starting on this song. Like literally no break every night, two hours on my laptop, just creating, writing, having the need to put the junk somewhere and luckily having this project to kind of absorb all that. So it was just a a lot of factors that kind of combined at the same time to create our record. And we're all very proud of it. Everyone on there, they give a unique take, a different voice to a really broad subject in a way that anyone can relate to something in there is going to draw you in. And they were all willing to share their truth with me as an online stranger. They trusted me with their work. And there's some heavy messages in there. But at the end of the day, there's hope. There's a message of hope throughout all of these two. There's that light at the end of the tunnel. It's kind of like we have a little oil slick moment. And most of our songs, just something to lift you up at the end, to know that we're all recovering together from something. And in that community, together, we're going to get through whatever we need to get through. That's such a nice way to connect it back. Did you feel that those pointed moments that people are passing on to you deserved a different strategy, a different tact on how you'd put music underneath them? Once I did the first song and I felt comfortable with my voice because I'm not really a singer, once I got the first song put out, 
and I shared it with the rest of the group and they were very positive about it. It kind of felt my confidence grow in a way where I just trusted my instincts. I kind of let the song meander and flow where it went. It's weird. Like when I do these songs, while I'm writing the song and recording it, the damn thing just like plays in my head rent-free every day until the song is done. In a way, I'm rehearsing it, practicing it, but I felt a level of trust with the poets from the get-go and that opened up my confidence. I felt that they appreciated what I was doing and they trusted me. Like I never got a single pushback from anybody. Nothing about my lyrics, nothing about the music, nothing about anything. So either they were being really nice or they really liked it. Once I had that trust, I felt very creatively free to just let my music speak for itself and my lyrics, very cathartic in a way, that feeling of trust. I didn't know these people. I was friendly with them, people in Michigan that I've never met face-to-face. I've only typed on Facebook Messenger with them. And yet they're sharing with me a poem about how they were you know, bullied as a child or their step-parent burned them, all kinds of things that require recovery. The music just kind of naturally flowed out of that process. Scott works that into his song so often that he deliberately plays a chord that you think that's diminished. Does he mean to be playing? Yeah, of course he does, because it works perfectly <laughs> with a lyric that he then says like a word later. Did yes. you find yourself doing anything like that musically? Yeah, I did. So again, there's 13 songs. So I was on song 12 and it was a song called Railroad Earth. But the song, it was apocalyptic. It was an apocalyptic take. Let's burn this world down. Let's start again. Let's recover. Life started over. Halfway through writing the song, the invasion of Ukraine happened. And I, I remember, first of all, feeling hopeless, feeling really sad about it. But then I saw a video of a, a Ukrainian soldier leaving his daughter, same age as my daughter, around three or four. She was crying and he was crying and he was off to battle. And that just destroyed me. It just tore me up because I connected with it. And I just, I felt so powerless to do anything about it. That turned the song upside down. So I was very angry. The song starts off really sweet, but then it, it gets really angry, really aggressive. I've got like machine gun drums going underneath it. I got my whammy pedal out and I was doing all kinds of crazy guitar stuff, trying to create like a battlefield sort of with the music. I had a hard time verbalizing what I was feeling, my sadness, my, my rage. So the only thing I could do is just put it into music and put it into like ahs and oohs. Could not say what I wanted to say. Say it better with like melody, if you will. And so I thought that was a really powerful moment on the record where that just took a complete 180 and didn't even really talk about recovery on my end. I was in the moment and that's what felt right. And I had to get it out somewhere. I feel those kind of things are tangible to me. So if they stay in here, they're going to manifest somewhere else, probably in an unhealthy way. That was just a target of opportunity. The song was there and there it went. End of the song. It's crazy to hear that that was influenced by such recent events. you had a favorite scott song or scott album yes favorite album still has to be painting of a panic attack just because that was my first introduction usually the first record like the entry record is the one that sticks with you but i love them all and my favorite song is nitrous gas off of pedestrian verse it's one of the few songs that i can listen to on repeat again and again and again and never get sick of it it just hits me in all the right places every single time 
And what a gorgeous song. And I've seen the video live a few times where the band joins him and sings back up and it just makes me want to cry. <laughs> I think he said it himself. He was trying to write the most miserable song he could. And I've always loved miserable songs. I've always kind of do the sad songs. Turn off that major key stuff. It just give me the minor key. That's what I always like. The end of Oil's like the lyrics, you know, the power that that record ends with. I also love very much Acts of Man and Things. They have a thing for putting their best song as the first song on the record. Another favorite of mine, another bad one, is uh, Bird is Bored of Flying on the Master System record. And that's another last song of the record that, oof, it's hard to listen to that too, in light of everything. But boy, at that point, you can hear it in his delivery. You can hear it in his vocals throughout that record. He almost sounds, or he does sound pretty desperate and cracked up in some of those deliveries. But by the time he gets to that song at the end, he wasn't holding anything back at all. And he meant what he said. He feels very tired to me throughout those lyrics. He writes a lot about getting old, but never really growing up in a song like Teething or a song like Old Team. You could sense he was getting tired. At least I could sense that. So to put the punctuation on the very end like that, I can't think of any other, any other band or songwriter that has done that. So I, I speak for Floating in the Force, but also for that song, because that's kind of like a first chapter and a last chapter. You didn't get to catch him live at any point, but do you have any favorite videos of live mm. performances that you've seen? I do. And I've watched it a million times. 2016, the Rogue Orchestra performance is beautiful. Every song is one of my favorite songs. Flawless performance. The orchestra behind him sounds great. His version of Things, that's my favorite version of Things. His version of Death Dream is incredible. He starts off with Get Out, which is one of my favorite songs. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched that. Brings me a lot of joy because he seemed happy and comfortable and he seemed healthy. I've come back to that one a lot. He definitely seemed in a good place at that era. And you're right, it's such a nice set and such a nice way to remember a live performance mm. after the fact now, having such a clear, different take on the songs. Are there any other live videos that you've caught and thought, oh, I wish I was, I was there for the whole set? Lollapalooza, 20, I think it was 2013 or 2014. And also, this was a 2017 show where he played in Boston, a little pop-up where he played live acoustic by himself before the show. He was telling funny stories. He was kind of riffing on the fact that his like, brother was the drummer. Have you, have you seen this video? I think so, yeah. <laughs> starts playing backwards walk. And the crowd starts like going, woo, when he first starts playing. And so then he gives this whole thing where he's like, listen, when I was a kid, I always wanted to write a song where when I started playing it, it was so famous that people just went, woo. So he's like, let me have this moment. So he starts playing it and everybody does their thing. And it was really charming and funny and really sad too. Um, but it's a great performance. He plays uh, foot shooter uh, acoustic. He played square nine. It sounded great acoustic. I always listen back to that too, because I think he's endlessly funny and charming too. He just feels like a friend that I never met. I hear this banter during his live performances. He shared so much of himself, both in the music and in the causes he supported. If he hadn't done all that, we wouldn't be chatting here today because the legacy wouldn't have been strong enough for people to connect. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting that. I think that's a positive way, a glass half full. But man, I, that really hit me, what you just said. Do you have a favourite memory of Scott? Or maybe have you got a favourite memory that's come out of everything that you've been doing for Tiny Changes? Yeah, I mean, a lot of me thinks that I wouldn't have any of these projects, my poetry projects, especially if it wasn't for if it wasn't for Scott. You know, I don't think the songs would be the same, at least because I'm pretty sure I would have been holding back in my lyrics. So it was a complete paradigm shift when I saw that 
the other person feels the same way that I do in a lot of ways and is able to channel that somewhere else in a slightly more positive direction. I think a lot of what I've done in the last couple of years has been a direct correlation to discovering Scott and the music and his lyrics and his story and his struggle. You know, I think his struggle is the same struggle that too many of us deal with. I don't think people realize how much mental health issues there are. A lot of people, especially men, are sometimes hesitant to want to talk about it with anybody, even their spouse. So I think that's the most relevant thing that's come out of this. Obviously, I don't have any memories of being there in the moment, but I still remember the first time listening to Death Dream and just being bowled over that I had never heard this before. By that point, it was almost four years old. I remember the light bulb that went on where I'm like, oh my gosh, I have been sleeping on this. And I could just tell, I could tell that I was about to go on this, you know, musical adventure. Flawed, it's a flawed adventure because I knew that it had an end point. I've been a lifelong music fan. I live and breathe music. It's in my head all the time. It never stops. So to have this blessing, have these positive ripples now after the fact, it's kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. A couple of years ago, I was in my shell. I was in my shell lyrically, musically, and I think he helped me kind of come out of that and open myself more and feel more comfortable with myself and the flawed things that I have to say too. I think it's such a good answer. And it's so nice and refreshing to be getting a completely different angle on Scott's music, because obviously a lot of the people that I've been speaking to so far, it's been people who maybe they absolutely loved one album or they got into Scott at a certain fixed point. We all have it. When you get into a band, you get fixated or maybe stuck in that first iteration, that first Mm -hmm. understanding of them. It's a good point. A lot of people sell the fact that they have anxiety or depression. It's almost like they wear it as a badge of honor. They want you to see them as being authentic. With Scott, it never felt forced or put on. It just, you could just tell by the weight of the lyrics that he was the real deal. Have you done anything else to commemorate Scott? In the works right now, I have another full-length album that I'm doing with a poet, Michigan-based poet. His name is Jared Morningstar. And one of the first songs we worked on was for his poem. It was called Thank You. And it was written for uh, the American folk indie artist, Jason Isbell. So for Jared, Jason was very influential as far as being a parent and just being a good role model. Jared learned a lot about life and what it means to be a real man from Jason. I wasn't really familiar with Jason Isbell's music, but I definitely had a thank you to say to Scott. My lyrics wrote themselves, but I tried to throw in as many Frightened Rabbit Easter eggs as I could in the lyrics. I think there's at least 10 songs that lyrically I reference. Talks about my thank you to how he kind of opened my eyes to being honest and to being open. But I also threw some positive in there too. You can get lost, but I want you to hang around, which is a, a lyric from Roadless, one of my favorite songs. And I talk about like holding on to the light, hold tight, don't let go, just don't let go. No matter how bad it gets, just hold tight. That song became my tribute to my biggest musical hero today, which is Scott. So it was an interesting crossover. Half the song is him talking about Jason Isbell. <laughs> Half the song is about me, slightly a metaphor, talking about Scott. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. I'm excited to share it with our Frightened Rabbit friends. I'm not going to tell them what songs I'm referencing. So I think it'll be kind of a fun exercise to try to pick out all of the lyrics. All proceeds will be going again to Tiny Changes. We're going to release the song as a single. I think overall, we're going to maybe split up the charity a little bit on this one just to share the love around, but at least for that song. 
we'll do a big push and we're going to have another uh, tiny changes fundraiser out of it. Hopefully get a lot of streams and downloads and streams are great, but I only get like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny. So downloads are where it's at. <laughs> Is everything up on Bandcamp as well? Do you have a Bandcamp set up? I have a Bandcamp. Bandcamp, occasionally still doing Bandcamp Fridays where all the proceeds that people pay go to you rather than paying for Bandcamp. I need to push that more. I have zero expectation of making money. In my heart, I want to just donate everything anyways. I'm doing it for the love and the catharticism that I get out of it and the therapy that I get out of it. It's all going to someplace positive, whether it's a donation or whether it's just, you know, for my own personal benefit. 3,000 listens is really good going, no matter who you are and what you're doing. How did the name Brotherwell come about? First of all, I think Motherwell is a beautiful name, just objectively. That's where I stole Brotherwell from. It's like, that's close enough. I like it. It's a clever reference. I actually have a Motherwell FC sweatshirt. And I was at a Bonnie Vera concert a couple years ago. And this guy, Scottish guy turns around. He's like, excuse me. I can't, I don't have a Scottish accent, so I'm not going to try it. But he's like, how do you know about Motherwell? I was just, I felt like kind of embarrassed to say, well, you know, I was looking for a cool name. (laughs) I Googled Scottish city names and Motherwell came up. But yeah, that's how I became a Motherwell fan. Oh, that is a cool connection and a good reason to find someone and support someone. Absolutely. I used to be able to watch them on like ESPN 12 over here. I used to be able to catch all the Scottish games, rough and tumble, strife clad versus Caledonian Thistle. And I was able to just watch these fascinating games, like a 1-0 game in the mud. (laughs) Scottish football, I take my hat off to you. It's like unspoiled though. Yeah. You know, these stadiums for a Motherwell game, they don't sell out the stadium. But when they score a goal, you can feel that collective voice through the screen. It reminds me of being in Scotland. We went there a couple of times. We liked it so much, we went back the next year and maybe feel like I was at a Highland game somewhere eating a deep fried Oreo. You know what I mean? Sometimes it's just an escape. Turn on the Scottish soccer and just take it in. We have a say it's for the purists, for people who, if you can gain enjoyment from that. That is your enjoyment alone, and no one can take that away from you. It's amazing. <laughs> Such an amazing thing to have. That's right. Rare to find in life, I think. Something that's you feel like it's just yours alone, or you and a few thousand people, but maybe not you and the world. I sure feel alone in St. Augustine, Florida, watching Scottish <laughs> soccer. I'm pretty sure I'm the one. There's like a one somewhere like next to viewership, and it's me. <laughs> <laughs> that metric is currently doing someone's head in on ESPN right? 12. <laughs> Who's the one guy buying Iron Brew at Publix? they have iron brew for sale at our local grocery store amazing it's delicious i love it i'm the one person at the grocery store i'm so glad they stock it i remember going there to scotland and going i'm never going to be able to buy this again so i just i got all the iron brew i was like turning orange i was drinking so much of it and and then i went back to publix as our local grocery store to my surprise i could see it from the end of the row i'm like what is that orange goodness down there at the bottom there's no way in hell that this is iron brew and there was I was like, I bought all of it. There was like 12 and I bought all 12. And even the people that were ringing me out were like bewildered. They're like, what, what is this? Like, how do you, how do you pronounce this? And I'm like, trust <laughs> me, it's delicious. <laughs> Many Frightened Rabbit friends across all of the communities over the internet have commemorated Scott in a whole bunch of ways. That's stickers, listening parties, street art going up, visits to benches, tribute shows, craft sales. Is there anything that you've been part of through the communities? Is there anything that you've seen and been like, oh, I need to be part of that? My funny answer is I see people riding bikes all over Scotland. It would be my dream to go Forrest Gump and just go for a run around America and raise money. 
but you know, really the biggest thing that I've uh, participated in are as my musical projects, which just gave everything that I'm doing just a whole new meaning. You know, I've never done this before. I've never like written or done anything, you know, for the benefit of somebody else. It's always just been for me. So that's the biggest thing that I've been a part of. And I want to continue. I want to continue to collaborate. I want to continue to work with poets. I want to work with other musicians, artists, you know, anybody in the creative realm waiting for someone to approach me because usually I just approach other people. I'm waiting for an artist to say, hey, I have some art, some Frightened Rabbit related artwork. Do you want to write some music for it? Or maybe a poet to say, hey, I wrote this poem. Like, can you write some music around it? That's kind of what I'm starving for at the moment because I never stop writing. You know, writing is everyday thing for me, 365 days a year. So if someone's listened to this and they've got it in their heads, they'd love for some of your music to sit behind something that they've done. Where can they reach you? I'm on all the major platforms. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on the TikTok. And you can just search for Brotherwell Music. I'm pretty easy to find. And if all else fails, just find me on Facebook. I won't say no to pretty much anything. So hit me up if you have anything you want to get creative with. Just know that it's a non-negotiable for me that we're going to donate. We're going to pay it forward to Tiny Changes. Just knowing that I don't charge a fee or anything like that. This is all just a labor of love from the heart to benefit someone else and have some fun in the process. Hopefully you'll get some people contacting you. It'll be lovely to hear. That's my dream. My dream is to have 12 Scottish poets say, <laughs> hey, we have these 12 poems about Triton Rather about Scott. Make the music. So I have one guy that, like, that said yes, but I'm waiting for 11 more. <laughs> so No secret Scott tattoo anywhere? or No, <laughs> but I, I want one. You know, I'm 40 now, so I mean, I think I'm past my tattoo prime, but if I were to get one, I think I'd get the double cross somewhere. Yes, that. Maybe not that big, but somewhere. The triple cross. I went triple. I know the fan group love the double cross, as do I. But I always thought all my tattoos, they've got to have some personal meaning for me. I always felt that pedestrian verse cover spoke to me. The shows that meant the most to me seeing him live. It was the album that probably dragged me into wanting to go back and listen to absolutely everything all the way through make sure that I was a super fan of all the stuff not just the mm -hmm. new stuff if you do end up getting a frightened rabbit tattoo I can almost promise you that you'll end up getting more tattoos down the line something will grab you I've always loved the symbolism or even like the non-symbolism of that cross and Scott said that there wasn't really any meaning behind it it was just a symbol for symbol's sake but now it is a symbol after everything that's happened so I think it's really cool it's got a story it's got meaning something that I care about deeply. So I think those are the parameters for an appropriate tattoo, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe if after a suicide hits, I don't know, 10,000 streams, I'll get one. Get listening, folks. I'll cut that bit in just for that. If we can get it up to 10,000, we expect. Let's do it. All right, I'll do it. That's done. Final question. Besides the big, tiny change that you're working on, is there any other future plans for projects, different projects or projects along the same lines? You know, Tiny Changes is really my focus right now. So definitely more music on the way. I have so many projects in the backlog right now that I, I probably have about two more years worth of solid collaborating going on, mostly with poets. But that's really where my head's at these days. So that's what I want to keep doing. I feel good about my mission, as it were, to benefit somebody else, even though it's in Scotland and not in America, it's still helping others. It doesn't really matter where. It could be on the moon. I'm completely honored and thrilled to talk about Scott and Frightened Rabbit and Tiny Changes and about my work. And I really mean that from every side of my heart. It's my pleasure. It honestly is. This has made my day right here. It would be a really great feature. I think your cat disagrees. That's Scotty the cat. <laughs> She's a girl. I think he'd laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs>
you did got, some kind of number on your i don't know what that is a painting or something uh, yeah it's a, <laughs> it's fine it was um something that i've not hung up yet so she's just reminding me that i've got to got to hang yeah. it up yeah, cats, cats are helpful like that in a dickish way. Yeah. We, got, we got two together the Easter after he passed, and I couldn't not name one of them Scotty. I think it's a cute name. We gave the big boy a stupid name, and we didn't really like it. So after about a day, we decided it's Easter, and it'd be really funny if we called him Jesus. So <laughs> Yes, I love that. So Jesus is just a ginger cat's name, is what <laughs> What my friends usually chant. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Oh, there you go. You'll definitely see Brotherwell out there a lot coming up soon in this year and into next year too and beyond. It's such a great thing that you're doing to continually push for tiny changes through a, a great creative cause as well. And as you say, the great thing about that creative cause is it's helping you personally. It's helping those people that you're collaborating with personally and ultimately it's helping the listener. It's helping everyone who interacts with it. And if they're paying for it or if they're streaming it enough, <laughs> then that money will all turn around as well to go on to help such a worthy cause and commemorate Absolutely. such a great guy. Well said. I couldn't say it better myself. Cheers to that. Cheers to that indeed. Thank you so much. Honestly, thank it's been, you. been a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you, Alec. I really appreciate you and your time. And anytime you want to talk about this or anything else, I'm an open book. Absolutely. Stay in touch. Ryan Bozeman there, aka Brotherwell. Since Ryan and I spoke, streams of After a Suicide have over doubled to over 6,500 listens, and will likely have neared 10,000 by the time this episode is released. Why not give it a spin and try and get it over that magic figure, eh? Brotherwell's music is available to stream and purchase from all the usual sources and from brotherwell.bandcamp.com. If you're doing something special in aid of tiny changes or to remember Scott, why not get in touch with the Scott Pod via thescottpod.com or via thescottpod at gmail.com and share your news. Thank you again to Ryan for his time and his candour. Thanks as ever to Fran Atkinson for assisting with editing of the podcast, to Jane Coates with assistance on website and socials, and to you, fellow Frabbits, for listening and engaging. Spread the word and spread the love wherever you can. To close out this episode, we've got a listener cover submission. Performing a cover of Nitrous Gas, that's Ryan Bozeman's favourite Frightened Rabbit song, is Hannah Shamali. You can check out more of Hannah's stuff by searching for Hotel on Mayfair, or by searching her name, Hannah Shamali, and that surname is S-H-O-M-A-L-I across all the usual platforms. Take it away, Hannah. Shut down the gospel singers and turn out the old heartbreakers I'm dying to tell you that I'm dying